Welcome back, everybody. Cheers, Hannah, to the renewal of Hot D for season two, right after the drop season of episode two, one. Baby. Cheers to all of you, everyone out there. Cheers. Clink your drink glasses around. Wait, I got two cups. Oh, cool. Hot D season two, baby. It's happening. I don't know why everybody was pretending like it wasn't going to happen, or at least George, when we interviewed him, was very coy about it. Like, man, hasn't been renewed for season two. Don't know what's going to happen. But here we are, biggest opening night in HBO history, right? Yeah, yeah, biggest opening for a, for a new series, yeah. Yeah. So something like 10 million people watched Hot D on Sunday night. So what we all kind of hoped for, that Sunday night GOT ritual from the 20-teens. Everything is awesome. It was uh, 3 million behind the first night airing of the finale of Game of Thrones. I don't know if That's anybody cares about these numbers. But good. I think we all should care about these numbers because— what? Well, because there was a lot of talk about how Game of Thrones is over because it's out of the cultural zeitgeist and the last two seasons were so bad that no one's going to want to watch again. And only three million people fell off the train. And maybe those people will come back next week. Or maybe they're watching over the course of the week, too. True. Yeah, exactly. So it was 19 million over the course, I think, maybe not of the week that it was out. The finale of GOT, but maybe, like, I don't know what the exact measurement window was, but they called it 19 in the end. So, And that was not including the 50 people in your apartment. 50 people so. in my apartment, but also the <laughs> all the different bars around the world and uh, right. uh, people that are torrenting stuff. So, whatever. Well, my favorite meme or video or tweet or whatever to come out of the week is that one of somebody taking a video in New York. I'm sure everybody's seen it of the apartment building windows and you can see everybody's watching House of the Dragon because of the way their TVs are flashing. It's like a light show outside the building. I know. And what was the craziest part about that is that this is all on demand. And so that means right. that they, they all of those people turned it on right when they could. And there was no organization between them. Probably not. Not Even well, if there was like a sign in their building in the elevator, <laughs> it's not like that they were all made to turn it on at the same time. So that was all just excitement. That's the thing that rules. And I think that's what we were all really looking forward to. And this week, that really came to life. I know like on Sunday night, I was out of my mind. Yeah, excited, I had and way my brain was too racing, many energy drinks and, that day. Yeah, way <laughs> that day too was many. a little extra. But... As the week has progressed, I've been able to kind of step back and relax into the first episode of House of the Dragon. I feel like that shared experience, you know, back in the office on Monday, getting to talk to everybody about it, you know, just all of these things that we missed since Game of Thrones been off the air came back in full force this week. And it's been really, really fun to, to interact with everybody. We've seen so many old familiar names and Twitter faces over the last week, reaching out and tweeting and sending in your thoughts and your owns. And it's been such a good time. Yeah, it really has been. We've gotten a lot of owns and the vibe seems to be really high. And I agree that that feeling of there being some kind of shared thing, I always called it something like the Olympics back in the day where it was not something that everyone had to be aware of, but a lot of people were just sort of paying attention to it because of the sporting element of it. And whenever you look at a show or a story in that way, it's really special to me because there's so many different shows now. And there's so, there always have been, at least in modern culture, so many different stories and different avenues to get those stories. And for enough people to 
like when you think about the sports that are in the Olympics, there's a lot of different levels of those sports before they get to the world platform. But that's when a lot of different casuals of those sports will go, oh, I'll see what curling's like, or I'll check out bobsledding. And that's kind of like what GOT turned into, like a showcase of art, cinematography, all the different stuff that goes into making. That's the first one I thought of, but all the different stuff that goes into making television shows and also just the concept of a story and how good the story is written and all of that. So all those different disparate parts for like that, like that have hardcore fans came together kind of like the Olympics did. And for 10 weeks out of every year for a while there, we had this weird uniter that like whenever you walk into the office, people have a fun icebreaker to bring up or when friends are hanging out, they actually have something to talk about that they can agree on, or at least they know the facts about something, and then they can disagree within the elements of that story. So and we it's don't have easy... to force force any of that kind of shared experience. So I just lucky. thought it would be tough for people to welcome. I, I didn't know it would be that I, I knew people would watch it, but it seems like everyone's kind of welcoming it into the place that GOT used to have. It's like they're missing that kind of tentpole that we all sort of agree is something worth commentating on. Obviously, there's a lot of people that don't want to participate very loudly, but still, I feel like there's there's enough fanfare around it. Maybe I'm just projecting, though. It's hard to say. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I'm curious to get your thoughts, too, as well on kind of how you feel about the episode now that we've seen it a couple times, but from conversations that I've had with people kind of outside of the typical fandom realm, you could say, is super positive. Great feedback, big excitement, down for the ride, understanding what's going on. You know, all of those things that on Sunday we were kind of talking about, how real is this? Are we just excited? But from the conversations I've had this week, you know, the same, like you were saying, giving it the same space as Game of Thrones did. And so, didn't I don't expect know, like, your that, thoughts. Like, you maybe didn't that was just that? a phenomenon, you know, or maybe it was just a, a unique situation because it happened around it. But for, you know, there's like a sort of familiarity and skepticism that might turn people cold on something, but maybe the three year gap was enough to sort of put a reset out there. Well, and the show is actually really good, at least from my. Yeah. I've got I've got four four watches under my belt at this oh, point. Oh wow! <laughs> Holy crap! One of them I was half watching, um, you know, kind of on in the background for the vibes. But to me, the episode really holds up. And one of the questions that we asked this week was, um, and we can talk specifically about the. I'm not trying to dive into the question right now, necessarily. But one of the questions we asked this week is, "What were you most surprised by?" And I think at the end of the week, I'm just most surprised by the rewatchability and how much I continue to enjoy the episode, even a couple deep in. And so I was curious about your experience as you rewatched, if you felt like you got the same feeling that you did night one, you know, later in the week. I think that I definitely got a little bit less of the explosive feeling because I knew it was coming. You had less energy drinks. I had less energy drinks. I knew it was coming. <laughs> but I really noticed a lot more of the smaller things, a lot more of the interpersonal looks and um, sort of like nudges toward stuff that isn't being said. Right. Um, I see very clearly from this first episode that there's a really strong plan that's enacted. And it's really hard to not raise yourself to a higher level of awareness when you're coming off the back of Game of Thrones, when you're a new prestige effort from HBO, and when 
people watch it, it's hard for them not to, I, to, I think, feel like they've saw something really special when this amount of attention to detail and work has been put into it. Also, just the awareness of the people working on it that it's kind of electric that they're making the follow-up to Game of Thrones. And then ultimately, I think the most significant is Ramin Javadi's score just making everything that it's on just that much better. I don't even think it's the melody or the motifs of the Game of Thrones music that is what makes it so good. I think that you could use anything. I think when John Williams chose do 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 for Harry Potter, I think he could have picked anything. Same goes for Star Wars or Indiana Jones or a lot more of these really epic orchestral efforts for the these moving picture like people just pretending on camera. <laughs> like people just pretending like they're other people. But if you put the right scale of music into it i don't mean like the musical scale but like the right size and approach to the attention of detail but also having that sort of sense of grandiosity that he puts into game of thrones i know there's a lot of other stuff on tv that's doing fantasy but there's just something different about how ramin is doing the score and um i just like i said i think it's really hard to for people to watch this and not think of it as something a little bit better than everything and it's good to see it still working after all this time I couldn't agree more. Also, you told me, and I totally forgot about where he learned his, or he got his chops from, the man who made Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, we when we we had (laughs) Ramin Javadi on the podcast. Forgot uh, about that a handful of years ago. After wasn't it right after the Winds of Winter episode? After that, I think so uh, I pretty much blacked out during that episode. Like I was so nervous. You're like, <laughs> so. I you blacked out right after he told us how to pronounce his name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's still why you won't say his name. You go, yeah, that guy does really good at that <laughs> music. <laughs> um, we had so we ha- had him on the show, so we did a little bit of digging. Uh, like, who even is this person? It's just the name, and he's some fictional character that makes this music that lives in a castle somewhere. But no, yeah, you know he he. He trained under Klaus Bedell, who uh, did the Pirates of the Caribbean soundtrack and a bunch of other stuff. So that famous song that you like to sing before you do something cool, uh, that was one of his mentors. And also, uh, Jesus Christ, I almost said Lars von Trier. Uh, Who's that that other big – who's his main – his main – Hans Zimmer was his main mentor, I believe. I think he really worked with Hans Zimmer. But anyway, go find that episode if you're interested in hearing about his process of making music for these shows because it's pretty fascinating. And it was kind of like you've been saying, it's really cool to kind of see that come to life and see that like stand on its own two feet without leaning too hard into what we've already done. But making something new and something interesting and something different and emotional and funny and like we said, having depth to it. And so the fact that it still works is the best part for me. You totally. Know? And to do it centered around a lot of people have noticed over the week, we've seen a handful of reviews and some people are upset about the negative reviews because they say things like, this is just about Targaryens. There's too many Targaryens. And their reply to that has typically been what I've seen. Yeah, that's what the show is. That's literally what the show is. <laughs> it's about Targaryens. But like a shadow of what those negative reviews are I, I can i can see and understand that and one thing that i think is neat about what we've seen so far is that it's fine it's not it doesn't feel small even though we were only cut between a handful of scenarios we had three or four small council sessions i want to say four maybe three ver- plus the emergency one that they called uh without damon and uh without rhaenyra at the end of the episode we had obviously the 
tournament of. Uh, Have you seen the tournament? The pictures comparing that tournament versus Roberts to Roberts tournament, like a red from fair season one. <laughs> yeah. in East Pennsylvania. <laughs> like the times were tough. I back know. Then. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I guess you could. It canonically goes with the scale of the empire, but still, totally. it's, it's pretty. Funny. It's pretty damn crazy, especially when <laughs> you see like how the sequences are shot, like just the jousts in general. <laughs> All of it is not good with Robert. Bow your shits. <laughs> like it was all on the shoulders of those of those characters, which is totally fine. It just it fits the vibe so well of kind of the era that they were in then versus, or I guess not then, then when we were watching it because that's in the future for the storyline. But I saw a uh, cut. I think on these midweek episodes. By the way, this one's late because of a number of reasons. Mostly because we've been trying to get faster internet internet to record. <laughs> Remotely, I got ice packs under my laptop right and now. And has guys. ice packs under her laptop. <laughs> we're doing our best. Yeah, I was thinking maybe we try to find not just owns. We're going to get to uh, a lot of owns later, but I was thinking maybe we could try to find some of the best memes that come out of I know. the week. I know it's a lot of work, but at least the best ones that we see. It's just hard well, to describe memes, you know? What do you mean? Oh, like say it out loud? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. But we've been retweeting and putting stuff on our Instagram. It's been so much fun because people have been out there putting in work. I was going to say from the tourney, I saw someone take Damon getting knocked off by Kristen and sliding down the joust rail. I saw someone put like Tony Hawk's pro skater HUD overlay (laughs) and (laughs) punk music behind it. (laughs) And like the grind sound effect. We need all of that stuff, though. I know. Because the more one of those things that I feel like really kept people alive during the last couple of seasons was was that shared kind of meme experience. And so the more shareability we have, the more people are going to tune in and get excited. Not that we necessarily need it now that season two has been renewed, but something else that I heard a lot this week was that there was, and I was curious what you think about this, is that there was way too much small council time. It's a different show. I agree with it because that's what the observation is. And it was cute. Especially seeing the stones, which we know now are not glass candles. They're like uh, an accessory that they added in to make the small council, I think, feel different and more legit because it's not in the time of someone like Robert. I still don't get what those are, though. They keep it in their pocket. They're very special. And they're like, I'm here. Yeah, it's like just a sort of lateral respect, you know, for each other. They're like, we know this is silly, but we're all doing it. I want it to be something cooler than that. You love that kind of stuff. You like exclusive <laughs> shit <laughs> like true. that. That's true. Come on. That's true. We That's need to true. start doing stones for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, like when we actually sit down to record and we can give guests stones as well. Sure. I think that statecraft is going to be a big part of this show. And there was like motifs of it whenever we cut to Otto doing a very Taiwan-like letter to... Old Town before he sent Allison off to Viserys' room. And so I don't think that we're going to get the same amount of focus on stuff that we've seen before. We're just going to get the high-level version, not because they're making a less depth, less deep show, but I think because they're building off of the depth that was put before. And so it's going to be color rather than main focus. And so I think that when you're doing that, they probably just add some some uh, tactile elements to stuff so it makes more of an impact while it's happening instead of having to like double down on 
introducing us to the concept of what a small council is. Sure. Because they yeah. already did that in the other series, which I think is neat. I think you could like re reintroduce it in your own way. But I'm glad that they didn't. I'm glad that they went in this direction. So I think we're going to get more of that statecrafty stuff that people might think is a snoozer that's dialogue but I don't think we're going to get a lot of it. If you... Uh, what, I, what I mean is, if we're going to get more of it, it's not going to be really drawn out in, no. in the same way that it was in this first episode. Well, and if we look at the previews moving forward over the next couple of weeks... We don't quite see as much. I mean, you know, the previews are only going to show some of the exciting parts. So I can't, we can't take too much stock from that, but we haven't seen too much of that. I think we got maybe one or two stills for next week's episode that have the small council in them. But I feel like it was a good introduction to kind of what the drama is and what the dynamics are and who the players are and kind of what all of their roles are at this point. Because it really highlighted, you know, Otto's whole thing. We got a lot of great, you know, coreless moments, at least like kind of not a lot of moments with him, but like we were it really introduced to a lot of people's personality and kind of the way that they see things with Rhaenyra as pouring drinks for the cups and kind of Viserys' whole style of trying to handle things. I just felt like the best place to do some of that exposition in this is who these guys are. This is how they feel about things. This is their ruling styles and kind of what they're moves are going to be that's the best venue for that i think in a place like this and so that or like the tourney tourney seating is also good totally just seeing them in a or the even the funeral just seeing who the who's who is and then getting those moments and then showing them actually doing their jobs is a good way to set it up it's clean they could have went further in and they could have showed uh more one-on-ones in the pilot but i think that it was sweeping because we're going to get a lot of those one-on-ones in the sort of style that we're used to before, like walking in the gardens or uh, like the the Queen of Thorns talking to Marjorie and Sansa with cheese. I think we're going to get situations like that of these characters on their own based off the drama that's now coming into play. There wasn't exactly. really any drama in this first episode. I mean, other than the, the horrible shit that happened. Like there was drama. But not interpersonal drama, and I think that that really says Some a, a lot. Some demon drama, but yeah. right. But I think that that says a lot about the kind of show and the kind of people that we're focusing on, because the stuff that was happening to all the people in Flea Bottom and in really just throughout the city when the Gold Cloaks were massacring random people, seemingly um, made a large traumatic impact on a lot of people. Even the people inside the brothel had a traumatic experience. I'm assuming at some point, mostly Damon, I would say. But for the most part, even during the the birthing scene, characters like Alicent Rhaenyra are just having a good old time. And uh, every, all the noble people really are just having a good old time. And it's like Rainey says that Magor hasn't been around for 60 years. And these are the nights of summer. They haven't gone through what previous people have gone through to keep this realm together under our collective rule. And so... They don't really have the, the right idea about the scale of the bad stuff that's happening. And so since the show is about the the nobility dealing with their own interpersonal conflicts, I think it's neat that they're continuing to show, at least so far, um, how it affects the small folk. And they're giving it to us in a way that it, we're supposed to pull that out of it rather than it being like, look at this. Do you see how unfair and unequal everything is? We're supposed to 
keep we're supposed to keep that in perspective as we're liking someone like Damon when he's literally pushing away or putting a head on a on a cart full of dismembered body parts of people that they probably sentenced on the spot at least in that cartoonish way that raper thief oh no <laughs> it's time murderer i mean that was so ridiculous so ridiculous but it also is a lot like the illustrations of that scene or that concept of those scenes itself from the book itself and from uh, popular artists who have put a lot of time into picturing the way that George was describing it. The way that everyone sort of pulls it out is it feels like old Westeros kind of was cartoonish like that. And I think in a way when you got dragons flying over the city and it's not an emergency, it was. I think that a lot of that cartoonishness really came to life. And we talked about this on Sunday, but it came to life in a not cheesy way, too. Like, they really leaned into not trying to be too cool about this whole thing. And so I feel like all of, all of the subtlety, you're kind of talking about noticing a lot of these glances between people and, like, these subtle conversations and us being able to zoom in on the small folk as they're at the tourney as well. And they just really leaned into this is what King's Landing is like right well, what now. What did you think about the uh, the way that they captured the inequality between all these people while also, I don't know, I mean, they like, they're glorifying them, but really they're just showing them as they are. And then meanwhile, you have Rhaenyra in the mix that sees the best, the better side of all of those things, sort of being a silent judge. I'm interested to see how much that comes into play in the future. Was that something that was just set up for episode one, just so we kind of, you know, have an idea of where the Targaryens sit right now? Or is that going to actually be a driving force throughout the rest of the season? Like, are we just trying to get a scope of what the world is like right now? That's a good I'm point. I'm not sure. It, they might end it there. It's, it's going to be difficult to show that in the Stepstones when it's just fighters versus fighters. Exactly. Unless a there's a thing. lot of, like, islanders. You know, people that live there, locals that are getting eaten up by dragon fire because there's like three bad guys there. <laughs> now that would be continuing that scale. Like, what the? We like this guy. We're even on Dragonstone too. True. It seems like those are the kinds of the two places that we're going next, at least. I know that we're already moving to some pretty harsh conflict based off of the footage. At least the showdown with Otto. I think we're moving right to consolidation pretty quickly, and the king's obviously getting more hurt. We had the uh, back lesion. He's got monkeypox, and we've got the new hand lesion from his exit with Damon. I just don't. What do you think? Do you think that we're going to be able to literally get all of these small characters, like the kids, Rainier and Allison, set up, and we're going to be able to green and black it all the way? I really do. I know there's so much going on, but I was surprised by kind of, I was surprised by kind of how fast things moved because episode one, we've already got. Allison up in Viserys's grill. I was surprised that we were moving so quickly, to be honest with you. Okay. And so, you know, again, is that just a sweeping setup of kind of what everything is? But we've already got Viserys bleeding on the Iron Throne and his ailments. And I kind of thought the opposite. Wow, I can't believe we're already talking about some of this stuff so early on in the season, kind of speeding towards that ultimate time and that that's tell. kind of that's kind of the conflict that we're moving towards at this point but yeah like you said time will tell but 
I felt like things moved really fast, to be God, honest. God, it's going to be so gritty when Allison really and Rhaenyra start truly rival, being rivals against each other. Oh, I think we're going to start to see it in next God. episode. I think I think you're right, but when it when it gets bad, holy crap! And I'm and I'm a bit if on the dagger, you know. I get I get it, yeah. But I'm if on it. I'm a bit if. I agree with you. I feel uh, a little bit better about it than I maybe would have three weeks ago, you know. But I think next episode we've got their relationship progressing. We've seen lots of Kristen Cole picks. And so that piece is going to start to really come into play. So we've got probably a couple, two or three episodes before he makes the swap. God, how good was the Kristen Cole setup? That was great. What it was way so great. A car- it's a great sort of summarization of all the attempts to do that in fantasy stories. So clean. And genuinely mysterious. Well, you can be mysterious when there's so much going on. You can just put like the, the biggest notes of the story. They didn't, we didn't have to say much. It's just he's from here. You said Dondarian. He took down two Baratheons. Boom. We see the way Rhaenyra is looking at him. See the way he's looking at her. They're kind of giggling to her friends. All of those little looks. Yep. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to. That's probably there's a couple things I'm looking forward to next episode. And again, this is a question we ask everybody that we can kind of read thoughts out. But that relationship progressing, um, with the weirdness with her uncle, every yeah, the, the Damon, the touching court scene. <laughs> you you come necklace. to celebrate the turn your father's putting on for me, right? Turnius for his heir. Oh. Now we well, we're gonna, both own a piece of our ancestry. Take listen, this necklace. The way she's like, hey, okay, go ahead and put it on me. I'll take <laughs> off this old piece of shit. <laughs> I liked that scene. I know you can argue that it's creepy or whatever, but it's supposed to be. I That's think. what I'm saying. It, meanwhile, we're just helplessly, aimlessly cutting people's faces off in the street. <laughs> but that's what it was, you know? These are our, pol- our politicians, basically. That's what it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're like, but they're celebrities. It's pretty interesting. What's he going to do against Chris and Cole at this turn? That's tournament? what it was. Well, and we're about to get the Damon Otto. I think next episode is the hand thing that we've been doing for them yeah. ever since the trailer came out. He picks his so, kid yeah, to fight against. Brings up that his was, dead wife. Listen, I know we've been talking about those subtle glances a lot this episode but Otto's face during that whole tournament and especially as the way Allison looks back at him after Damon not only picks his kid but then also asks for his daughter's favor and so him heading over to Dragonstone for that whole thing I mean we kind of got the beginning glimpses of that at the end of the episode when Damon heads off with Musaria you know rune stone dragonstone too many stones There's a lot bad. of stones I'm looking forward to what that, kind of that going down. I feel like there's been enough buildup in episode one between them. That's going to be so fast then. Throw the tension. I'm interesting to see how that, if if we're comfortable with working on a pace like that, when everyone's a little bit burnt about pacing. Let's see. You see did you notice that Allison chewing on her nails? Yes, of course I did. <laughs> and like digging into her nails when the the first death happened at that tournament? Of course I did. So looks like her and her dad have a Tywin Cersei relationship, but it's a lot worse because there's she's not made to feel powerful. Like Cersei was the king or the queen. And uh 
that's not the same for Allison. She's really young. And just how easily she listens to him and how easily he moves through the levels of power like Damon was saying about him being a second son and needing to create a plan for himself. Like at this point, if you're if you're watching really closely or if you're smarter than I am, <laughs> I noticed it on my second watch a lot easier that it seems like the setup is that Otto is already vying for the positioning for the throne right now. He sees this as an opportunity not only to get Damon out of the way, but to use the quieter call of succession the less powerful one with Rhaenyra even though the king decreed it as a way to be able to worm a potential child in with his kid seemingly already and uh geez well I would argue that Allison is also up to that task she she at least I I agree with you kind of like the nail-biting thing I think shows a lot of her innocence and a lot of her youngness and how she maybe a little bit more eager to please than being totally bought into the whole thing. But I would argue that she too is kind of looking around and placing herself in the right spots for the best opportunity. I don't think she's... Innocent. I think she's... Yeah, I think that I would agree that she's not on a Cersei level at this point, but I don't think she's completely innocent in the whole thing. I think she too is trying to cement her her spot with Rhaenyra or with anything. And you know something I, I also found interesting was when she goes to talk to her dad before Otto sends her into Viserys' space, you know, they share this, like, kind of cutie hug, but immediately Otto says, how's Rhaenyra? And immediately Allison says, how's Viserys? So oh. instead of necessarily the two of them talking about... Ooh. I mean, they've been through some things as well. They're kind of... And I know that, you know, it was... Amos who died, so it was their family, but you know, instead of checking in with each that stood out to me. It's like, instead of checking with each other, they're kind of checking in on their people. Right. And kind of what the vibes are on that front. So, I agree with you. There is still a lot of polish to be had and a lot of um, fierceness yet to be, like, discovered potentially from her side. There's less opportunity for growth. Yeah. So it's like they're still they're just, even if they don't know they're biding their time, it's like they are biding their time. Sure. Do you think that totally. they know that they're biding their time or they're just going to strike when the iron's hot and that's when they're going to become vicious? Well, it seems like now is starting to become that because especially if Damon's out of the way and Allison has Viserys's ear, it seems... Like, the only person who's really noticing anything strange is Damon, based off of that conversation that they have at the very end of the episode with Viserys, when he says... They all pray he calls, He's calling Otto out. Yeah. So, I wonder if him kind of really being out of the picture... I know he's been out of the picture, but we haven't been able to see it on screen. Him seemingly out of the picture, and Allison able to get close to both Rhaenyra and Viserys, this might be that time that they start to really push plans into action i'm not sure but you definitely you can like smell the opportunity on them in a really interesting and cool way and so i'm curious to see kind of what some of Otto's specific moves are going to be what those specific conversations are going to look like and kind of what he might try to continue to drive a wedge between damon and viserys while damon is off playing war yeah, and there's also going to be other suitors for Viserys that are lining up because they don't immediately choose Alicent as well. 
So I'm curious if we'll how see how that's going to go. Yeah, if we'll see them personally being involved with that or how they're going to be pulling the strings on the outside. This is how I think it's going to go. I think that all these other girlies are going to be lined up with Viserys all the time. And then I think Allison is always going to be the one who's, you know, reading to him at night kind of thing. Always just kind of around in the back. That's what I would do if I was her. <laughs> so, hmm. I think a lot of those relationships are about to explode. Those two are so, so interesting to me. They're so interesting Allison to and me. Otto. Because they seem, yeah, they, they have these... They have these uh, abilities like Littlefinger or Varys, and they they seem like they're almost cut out of a different world than A Song of Ice and Fire because they're so non-campy and they're so patient. And, you know, like the same could be said for characters like Tyrion and Tywin and Cersei, for example, but they they have so much color on them from being who they are, you know, being a Lannister and being the exact the exact Lannisters that they are where their dad's been tied when they've been really close to, to court ever since before Robert took over. Um, there's just less of that. They have more of that like uh Damon vibe when he walks around the city or he's, he's at places. He knows he's one of the it people and they don't really feel that way. And yet they're right there. And so it just feels like they're more from a different time. Well, they're from a totally different place. In Old Town. Yeah, but a lot of people at court are from different places, though. I know, but it feel, I don't know. Maybe it's like my own bias towards a place like Old Town, but it's, it's because it's where the the maesters are at. So it almost feels like a little more snooty. Sure. So it's like that ivory tower, like college town where everybody is a little bit more highbrow, for better or for worse. And then King's Landing is kind of where things actually happen. And so again me reading into it to like make it make sense in my mind but i they they seem othery to me a because there's some of the few people who aren't targaryens in the room and even you look at like the like corliss's family they've been tied to the targaryens forever mm-hmm. and so they get a seat at the table because they've just been in the mix for such a long time yeah but the high tower fam you know it's a little bit of a different story yeah, and so they they're from this kind of different vibe of a place and are definitely outsiders, but have somehow managed to climb the ranks into this really great position. And so again, like I said, am I, you know, making it make sense, but I like the way that that kind of played out and that we can kind of see that on the screen. Okay. So we've basically been talking about the third question from the four that we put out on social media this week. That third question is, what were you most surprised by? There's a couple though that I wanted to read. Honestly surprised by how great a first episode it was and how well they did with setting up the plot and making you care for the characters in an hour. I felt like its own show, or it felt like its own show, and didn't try to win us over fan service too much. I was excited for the show, but didn't think I would already fall in love with it as much as I do. Thanks, Kim. That's kind of what we've been saying, so it's a good summary. <laughs> Alexander Groot says, the body of Balon, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I'm surprised by anyone understanding that Andrew. he named his kid Balon by the word that he said. Right. It sounded right. like he said, what's his name? <laughs> 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 On Twitter, John MC, John Mick says, most surprised by the 
love that Condal and company poured into House of the Dragon. The world is more vibrant and alive than I remember seeing in Game of Thrones, plus revealing Aegon's true intent behind the conquest. And can we give it up for the dialogue they've given us despite the lack thereof in the book? Democracy Diva says, Matt Damon's butt cheeks. <laughs> yeah. And then Sandra M., the tourney. The blood bloodiness, but how many sons and lords of major houses were killed with no discussion of it afterwards in the small council. Those deaths should have legitimately started several family feuds. Looks like a lot of people are surprised by the secret, the prophecy, the A Song of Ice and Fire reveal. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I was shocked by that. I think that we hoped that we would get backstory and history and color and depth to A Song of Ice and Fire, but that was something that I was pretty shocked by. Conqueror's Crown, King Viserys pulling a Rogar Baratheon over Ama by a huge margin. Yeah. When we first heard about this birthing scene, that's what we thought. We weren't sure which one was going to be adapted into the show. And so we thought back to Rogar and Alyssa. We were thinking maybe they're going to have like a cutaway to set up Lady Jocelyn for some reason connected with Rainey's, but this was way better than that idea, obviously. And very intense. God, even worse on a second time. I know. I had actually skipped it the third and fourth time. Oh, well, that's something. Not even to be cool, but I was just like, I just don't want to watch this. I turned turned it down. I'm like, I want people live in my building to hear these wails of of pain. Right. No, we should turn it up for uh, visibility. (laughs) Travis Cole, how awesome the Dragon Pit looked. The runes of the last few episodes of Game of Thrones didn't do it justice at all. I was confused until I thought it was a Sept of Baylor at first glance. LOL. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. And then Shane Lisa on Twitter says the speed in which the story appears to be progressing. Yeah, that is that is something. But I like the way they averaged it out. I think so too. And, and I'm curious to kind of see if it was just seemed fast, like we were just saying a little while ago, because it was the first episode. And so they're trying to lay the groundwork or if it's just really going to be speedy, but not in a skipping through time way like we saw in the end of Game of Thrones. Okay, so... We were surprised by a lot of stuff. We're probably going to use that question again next week. I just like that question so much. What was? What are you surprised by? Um, maybe there'll be more surprises. But we all want to talk about, or at least I want to talk about, this uh, question of the prophecy that Aegon dreamed. I mean, we've talked a lot about prophecies over the years on this show. And i got to say that Song of Ice and Fire has some of the best... Um, like netherworldy, sort of a disambiguous reality, trippy sequences that I've read because they come from the mind of someone who's weird. Uh, he helped with Meow Wolf. You should look that place up, and then you'll understand what I'm talking about. And he also is a really big fan of sci-fi and fantasy, and he's also really good at writing it. So when you go through something like The House of the Undying, it's like, Jesus Christ, this is like exactly where you needed to put that object, and it's doing that exact thing. (sighs) It's holding a drumstick. What? You're going to add food into this element with this undead person as well? And it's pretty much the same energy as Dragon Dreams. It's all sort of in the same, I don't know, 
like area in my mind as far as the song of ice and fire i can't segment all these deeper mysteries into their own bucket just yet because we don't really have any clear answers on any of it and so this being shoved in our faces at the start of this hugely popular now but was always set up to be at least magnetic new series for folks and we're going to immediately inject not a subtle white walker scene but a, I mean, subtle is not what the White Walker scene was, but at least the White Walkers didn't say, Our, we were prophesized to come. Exactly, right. Or right. something like that. Like, it was a little more mysterious, yeah, less direct. Right, you like made your own conclusions. But here, I mean, it was a pretty much exact tie to the knife thing. I mean, it was he gripped it right after. I mean, that's about as in your face as it gets. That's like old action movie, old like Indiana Jones energy, but even less subtle than that. It's not that subtle. So right in our faces, boldly on a large network's new hit, potential hit show, they're going to talk about prophecies and they're going to say the name of the book series and they're going to basically say winter's coming and then they're going to say the exact same line that Liana told Rhaegar and that Kat told Ned. And we get it again in the trailer for next week really so it's not just a one time one drop story of ice and fire i mean we get rainera talking about it again oh yeah she's reading the book like i think she was there at valerian skull yeah it's like they keep a book hidden in there locked up that only a certain dragon key can open so we're gonna get you know a continuation of how this impacts her i think that they should have let the name of the theory we're gonna call it the theory right now (laughs) I think they should have let the name of the theory get revealed when she was reading it from the book. I'm just saying. Instead of being passed down? No, well, it can be passed down, but pass it down. But maybe you can just let her find out that Aegon sure. named it the Song of Ice and Fire. It's just like titular line being thrown at us immediately. When is someone going to say, but we are the house of the dragon? I know. That's fair. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I don't know if you read that article or anybody listening read that article that came out this week. Um Ryan Condal did an interview with a couple different outlets, and he explains basically their whole thinking behind that, kind of what George gave them and then what they made of, of their own. And essentially, I don't know if I should read the clip, I mean, read the the piece, but it's basically what you're saying. Um, Ryan Condal explained how the scene was based on new information Martin gave him during the early writing process. Martin said that Aegon was a dreamer, a name for Targaryens who had prophetic dreams. That was the detail that George actually gave us early in the story break. The idea that Aegon the Conqueror himself was a dreamer and that's what motivated the conquest, Condal said, which he mentioned casually in conversation as he often does with huge pieces of information like that. We took George's idea and spun it dramatically for House of the Dragon. This idea that at some point in Aegon's life, as he got older, he must have realized the White Walkers weren't coming for dinner during his lifetime. Then we decided that if he believed this, believed in this enough to conquer Westeros, he surely would have believed in it enough to pass the idea on, Condal said. So we had this become the legacy of the Targaryens, that they pass it from king to king as a reminder that the Iron Throne is a privilege and it's a duty and a responsibility. And so I think what you're saying about like um, her discovering that from reading it kind of as part of an old history or, you know, writings left behind or journals, I don't know, that may be what more of what George R. R. Martin himself like would have had in mind for this idea being passed down. And then the showrunners turned it into this verbal thing. 
I like the idea of her being told it by Viserys. Totally. I think it makes sense after them coordinating her basically as the next in line and the princess of Dragonstone. I just, the literal words, Song of Ice and Fire. Totally. I think, I think totally. she says it again in that clip or she reads it. If they could have just like cut to what she was reading, like they do in Lord of the Rings, there and back again. And it's like, oh, okay. There, there it is right there, but instead it was said out loud to us. That's a nitpick. It's fine. I'm sure it's exciting for a lot of people, and you got to put that stuff in there. You know, you can't be, like, smarmy. Like, I think that gripping the dagger is not, is too obvious. Like, no, there's no need to be a bully about it. But it is, you know, it is what it is. It's like when Sam says that at the end of season eight. It's like, uh-huh. Very on the nose. I like that, though. (laughs) We waited the whole time for it to be called that. I'm calling it the Song of Ice and Fire. (laughs) I like that. So our question was, how does Aegon's prophecy reveal impact the Aswaf series? So we talked about that a little bit just then. How long until that information was no longer passed between the Targaryen rulers? How does it affect the series is a great question. Uh, Well, Something I've seen a lot about it affecting the series this week is, does that change the way you see Aegon and his decision to conquer Westeros? Because, you know, when we're reading it, it's Aegon has a lot of dragons, and so he's just trying to flex. And so he looks to Westeros and takes care of business. But instead, this is him trying to do something for the greater good or following some sort of vision that he had i don't know if that changes your perspective on well when we were reading fire and blood and over the course of just being a fan of Asoff in general i always had this idea that there's some wiggly stuff going on with the targaryens with the doom with the branch of targaryens that went to dragonstone and with the decision for Aegon to treat it as like godlike of a mission as he talked about and then we got direct evidence in fire and blood that it was planned the painted table was made and pieces were being moved and there was a uh, a concerted effort to make this work on the first try dispatching all these separate kings and old lords and uniting obviously the, the kingdoms and in, into one so that doesn't really impact my thought on that that much if anything just gives it i guess my question is answered what was it? What was that right. wiggly stuff? Well, right. the wiggly stuff is that he's had some kind of dream about Westeros. Right. I don't think that that was his key motivating fact, but I think that it helped make the whole thing in his mind feel like more of an actual mission. But what do you do when you're completely bored and you have everything and you fly on a dragon as big as Valerian? I mean, I think that you probably want to tell yourself stuff like this to feel like all of this power makes sense. So I still don't know if this prophecy is real or if it was about the entire Song of Ice and Fire or if it um, was just a dream told in a telephone game sort of way over time that is just fitting the perspective of everyone that's retelling it at the time. I think that it's cute to pass it between the rulers, though. It makes people feel special. It sounds like there's like a little fun element and it could be like a nice uniting factor to add a little bit of extra precedent on it. And so if that's as deep as the wiggliness with Aegon founding, essentially founding the Seven Kingdoms, if if that's as deep as the reason why Aegon came to Westeros, that's the wiggliest part of it, then I'm cool with that. I, I don't need him to know 
the secrets of the werewoods. If he's got his own version of that, the fire side of things, we'll call it, and he's convinced about what he's seen, then I think it tracks with everything that's been written already. And I think that it's enough wiggliness to give us a reason to come to Westeros, especially if it seemed like it was going to happen sooner rather than later. And if there was some clear images inside of that dream, some really clear ones instead of it being confusing. I don't think that we got enough detail yet to justify that it had to be a Targaryen king or queen in charge. So maybe we'll get more info on that. But just the function of there being this kind of an element of the wiggly stuff from A Song of Ice and Fire more implanted in this series makes it feel more booky to me, which I think is a really good sign. And I think that as far as it impacting, I think more so it'll just add context and color to what we're getting from Asawaf. Just like the truth about a character like Brendan Rivers doesn't necessarily change. It is within the story. That's that's really what it is here. Like, it's not extra, I think, that Aegon had this prophetic vision. I think it was always there. And so it's, it's not going to impact it in a way where it's going to change. It's just going to add context to it. So just complicate our justification of it existing, but, but actually making it less complicated because the answers of how it got from A to B are going to be more fleshed out. With it then getting lost somewhere along the way, which is potentially why then somebody like Brand would get involved, you know, because that's something else. That's something that a lot of people have been thinking about as well is, well, if the prophecy was about the Targaryens and they clearly didn't do it, then what does that mean for the end of A Song of Ice and Fire and the way that D&D portrayed it? What do you think about that? I think that we kind of like you were just saying there's a lot of info that we don't know about it necessarily um i think that we can't take the end of season eight as gospel truth necessarily and so i would be curious to have this conversation after we read what happens because I think it's you're describing that this feels like a book and I think that George is able to do more with the show than he maybe was able to do with Game of Thrones and so taking the end of season 8 and the way everything played out as being the only way I don't necessarily think is fair to maybe some of these grander prophecies that are overarching for the series as a whole and so the way that we see it in season eight seems very much like Daenerys attempting to be helpful and to understanding that she needs to participate in that. But that really it was the Starks and Jon who, you know, is a Targaryen, but for all intents and purposes, not sort of, because he doesn't know um, until the end. And so I don't think that that diminishes the prophecy, but... Um, I don't think that we get have any clear answers necessarily. And then I think about how much it also doesn't matter. And I think that the bigger idea is that we have this um, plays into this idea of we have this like sacred right. Like to me, it almost plays into more of this idea of exceptionalism of we have this knowledge and we have this burden and understanding like the dragons of the need to protect the realm or to be bigger or different or um, 
use our power to protect everybody because nobody else knows and nobody else can do it and we're the guys. So I think it impacts the series because it adds richness. And I don't think that it necessarily changes the trajectory of anything. What do you think about how long they kept the info? Like, do you think it made it through the dance? Because to me, it seems like they're going to make it a pretty important part of Rhaenyra's kind of deadness to the world. She's going to be like, how can you guys be letting all this happen when there's a, a greater thing afoot? And like, she might champion that sort of the like task of their the royal leaders like oh my god this is our responsibility that might be part of she might sort of cringily maybe unless it's convincing champion that throughout this series potentially potentially and something else i was kind of thinking about was say she doesn't champion it or it gets lost here or at whatever point along the way it doesn't progress if potentially other targaryen kings would have a similar dream or similar dreamers if they were reveal. dreamers they, they dream about the same thing yeah because there are more than one dreamer and even Viserys talks about his dreams being so clear you know and so i wonder if this information would continue to get revealed uh along the way to kings Potentially, if it doesn't get passed down officially. Well, we definitely got it being dug up at a certain point in not, right. the not-so-distant future behind where the Asawaf story is. And you've got Summerhall, Targaryens messing with prophecy and forcing crazier thing, crazier, crazy and crazier things to happen. And uh, you've also got Bran this whole time, or Brendan Rivers this whole time, being able to channel back to even these moments. So watch so out. So maybe for it's that, just everyone. about being tapped in. It's about being kind of tapped into whatever it is that allows you to have access to this information. So maybe like the Starks know about it too now, but they're just not talking about it because it's not important. Well, you know what else was interesting that I was thinking about? Because remember when Alice, if Allie knew. Because I was thinking about that scene when she is at the wall and she flies north of it. And she talks about how the dragon wouldn't go over there and how the vibes were off. Yeah. I, can't, I should have looked that up specifically. It made me think more about that moment and how much she maybe knew. Of course. At that point. Well, if this is the way it is and it seems that it is, then she definitely knew about it. Which makes that even creepier, we that have, whole experience that she had. We have this answer from Rune to this question. And as says, always, other yes. people's answers are where I get my ideas from. I had a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Others <laughs> have given accident. good answers. But I question when and how Jaharis learned from Daddy Anus or from an older sibling as a wee lad from Magor. I was wondering that too. Like, how did yeah. this exactly pass through Magor? But luckily, there was a retinue of them available at the time. Visania, or in writing by Aegon I, did Jai and Alisan know when she went to the wall? Or did that experience motivate a bit of research? Now, that's interesting in both both directions if alisan knew it would recontextualize her trip and make her unsettling flight with silverwing a lot more freaking scary she probably worry she probably worry things were very imminent i'm totally with you especially like we're saying in the context of this past episode if she knows that there's 
there's some bad shit. I don't know how specific the vision was associated with things coming from the wall, but from a winter from the north seems like it was pretty clear. And so maybe that's where they started to connect the dots, if anything. Mm -hmm. And it, other than that, she enjoyed the vibe up there and helping out those folks. It makes a lot of sense as far as maybe giving a reason why she did spend that much time there outside of that nice stuff where she was doing her yeah, own doing intel. Some research. I think that's a good point. I think that's interesting. And then I wonder how that might be repeated in the future. A lot of people kind of in our DMs think that it potentially got lost with Rhaegar. Hmm. It must have been written down, and so that's kind of where why we see Rhaenyra reading it. So it was like one of those books that was found after 100 years. Yeah. Um, I want to read... Um, at Conqueror's Crown, Corlys Valerian is black deal with it, who says, good question. First, I think in the show lore, it'll be lost with Rhaenyra and the and the dance ends ruining up the notes. Ugh. It will be lost with Rhaenyra and the dance ends up ruining the knowledge. In A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm starting to think that this Aegon stuff will likely, likely be revealed to be what Rhaegar read in somewhere when he was young. I believe that Aegon had a prophetic dream of a threat, and this is why we conquered Westeros, part of A Song of Ice and Fire canon will likely be put in the next book by George R. R. Martin, which I think could potentially be true. The rest were revealed by Ryan in an interview to be a creative decision, which we talked about. So I believe in the book lore slash canon, Aegon wrote his dream down somewhere and nobody paid attention until Rhaegar discovered it. Explains why a lot of Targaryens never did anything for the North or the Night's Watch, which I think is an interesting point. They didn't know. Maybe Aegon was sure it would come in his generation, so he kept waiting until maybe he stopped believing it was true and left writings behind. Maybe Jay and Allie knew by reading this part of the secret being passed down seems tricky, won't lie. Because I like that, you know, if all if this was front of mind for all these Targaryens, how come they didn't do anything to bolster the Night's Watch or kind of help shore up efforts there? Hmm. I think is an interesting piece. And so that's obviously not going to be an issue in House of the Dragon. Right. But from George's perspective, how that information gets written down and then rediscovered or something. Eamon White Wolf on Twitter says, I think it recontextualizes the entire Asawaf world slash Robert's Rebellion. If Rhaegar knows the prophecy came from Aegon I and thinks he slash his kid is Azor High, which I'm sure he probably would, come on. He'd feel like his entire family history for 300 years depends on him. No big deal. Um, I like what Sandra M440 said, who says that this doesn't impact anything basically because readers already know that Rhaegar discovered something in the text. All this does is tell us what he read and the Targaryens did nothing with it. The more interesting question, which could have an impact on the story, is who is sending the Targaryen dreams? And are those dreams being sent to other people? My or just God. the Targaryens? My God. <laughs> well, if that's like the same, if that's where Bran's getting it from. I mean, I know not literally, but. I mean, maybe. Maybe or. Now Bran's taking up the reins and he's doing it himself. Sure, yeah. Is this all something that comes from Blood Raven or, you know, something? Or whoever replaces Blood Raven, if that ever right. happens. Right. These are old conversations being brought up, but when you get 
this like further reference on top of it in such a straightforward way, it's like, all right, where there's smoke, there's fire. Exactly. Maybe all of our delusional ramblings have some kind of stickiness to how George at least sees this all connected in his mind. We've also got Fleur Fee, Bulwar the Purple, who says, it makes some of the more unfathomable Targaryen actions make much more sense. All the incest, Maegor forcing so many women to breed with him, Aegon the Fourth suddenly legitimizing his bastards, Aeg torching Summerhall trying to hatch dragons, also Torrin Stark bending the knee. So maybe, it, yeah, like it plays into this idea of we have this info and we have to carry on what we're doing, otherwise we won't be able to Cut down the threat. I'm with you on Summerhall, but I feel like Magor forced all those women to breathe with him for a lot of reasons. <laughs> for fun. <laughs> and uh, the bastard legitimization thing could also, there could also be something to that too. But at the end of the day, I feel like whenever you're on your way out, or at least you know you're going to be on your way out, that's the easiest way to solidify something underneath yourself. That's like what Stannis was going to do for John. Not even being kin to him, he's like, this is just going to make everything much more simple. All these bastards should be legitimized, right? Right. So we'll see what happens next episode. I think that it seems like we're going to get more context. So we may need to ask this question again after we see uh, kind of how Rhaenyra reacts to it. Because we didn't get any sort of reaction whatsoever. We got this and then straight into the swearing fealty scene. So, Question two. Who is your pick for the best standout character so far? Hannah has highlighted at the top of this. Damon, Damon overwhelming answer from listeners. I went through and tallied because I was curious what everybody was going to say. And I would say probably 80% of the answers was Damon that came through. We thought it'd be Viserys. Well, that's what the hype was leading up to it was yeah. that it was all going to be Viserys. But most people said Damon. Uh, Kendra Peach said Damon. When I read the book, I hated him. Always thought he was a prick. But Matt <laughs> got me feeling like he was complicated, had depth, an anti-hero. Sandra M. also says, all were interesting, but I'm going to go with Damon. He's the most complex and interesting on the page. And the writing on the show and Matt Smith acting got him right. Good writing and acting also for Rhaenyra as she comes across more complex than on the page. What about you? Uh, I was going to put or I thought Millie Alcock playing Rhaenyra. I just thought she did an unbelievable job. I love how much subtlety she brought to the character. I obviously loved Matt Damon. Matt Damon. As, <laughs> not Matt Damon. Well, it's okay. Listen. <laughs> it's hard. Okay. Matt Smith as Damon. Listen, that's an easy thing to do. I, that, <laughs> I'm not the only one doing that. Thank God that happened for um, real. <laughs> it's so easy. I also obviously loved Matt Smith as Damon, but I would have to put my pick would be Rainier, just because we know that Matt Smith is a good actor, you know? So, and that he has the chops. Um, but I would, I by a slight margin, would have to say Rainier. What about you? Definitely Rainier. Millie Alcock destroyed it. I think it was one of the best jobs that anyone's done to carry an episode in Game of Thrones out of all the seasons. Like, she just fucking carried that shit. It was such a nice awareness and a nice portrayal, I thought, of a Targaryen. It was so non-cartoony. Yeah. It, within a bunch of, like, other swirling truths, which were big suits of armor with enameled details. And then the, 
we were able to see Damon get juxtaposed out of that when he's having trouble sleeping with Masaria. I guess they're not really sleeping. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, that makes sense why I would be bashful about it. You don't want to say fucking. Just like fucking. <laughs> like, you don't want to just say that. Um, especially compared to the rest of her family. I see Viserys is pretty low-key too, but Damon and his folks just stomping through the street with oversized armor to look cool and the action sequence that was the the tourney. Just to see someone like that uh, was very seated into the... Uh, the person that you would think that that would would give you the story would give you mm-hmm. instead of someone having like snappy lines it was someone with like a a really calm presence within the game of thrones world which i i welcome seeing me too and i was thinking a lot about how i think the reason why maybe we were so struck by these guys is so much of the characters in the last couple seasons of game of thrones were boiled down into their quippy one-liners or to like shells of who they used to be you know like Tyrion became I drink and I know things that was it and Daenerys became where are my dragons and that's it but I didn't feel like we didn't get that in this episode if that makes sense we got kind of back to that so much more nuance and I don't know, I don't think that's an acting issue. I just think that's like partially a writing strength. Yeah, too. Like to that be kind of helped. One thing in one scene and be another thing in another scene. In yeah, the same I think episode. that. So I don't want to like dog on the Game of Thrones actors because I don't think that that was necessarily. No. But maybe I a think, few of them. But maybe yeah, a few. But I think the combination of great writing and just these amazing actors really made so many of these characters come to life in House of the Dragon in a way that we just haven't seen in Game of Thrones in a long time. In my opinion. All right. Let's get to this last question. The last question we asked was major plot predictions for episode two, The Rogue Prince. We're going to leave King's Landing. The prince will be rogue. (laughs) I think so. It looks like we're going to get stepstones. I don't know how much of that, though. And then more of this prince that was promised. It says... Rainier's, this is a line, Rainier's reading and she says, the prince that was promised and his will be the song of ice and fire. That's the line that she's reading from the trailer. I assume that's next episode. It's hard to say because some of the trailers potentially might just show weeks ahead things, but it would make sense. It would kind of come off the heels of that conversation. So we're just going to use the next on to fuel our predictions now? I think so. I think that's probably the safest source, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, based off of Fire and Blood, I think that Damon is going to partner up with the only guy at the small council who had his back, other than Viserys. Oh, Corley, our boy Corley. And uh, we're going to see some, some like... uh, like, uh, I, I want to say bro feelings, but that's so, it's so, first off, out of date and a little bit, uh, like, simple. So here's what I'm going to say. We're going to see some alliances get made, like in the Big mm-hmm. Brother house, where these two guys <laughs> are like, you know, we've always had each other's back, and together we can probably do some cool stuff. And maybe something good will come out of it for the both of us. And their hands smack in the middle. <clears throat> I just didn't they, uh, already go to pose like auto, like we're already going to be somewhere. So, all right. So I predict that's going to happen. What about you? I think that's a fair prediction. I mean, it seems like we got some of that Stepstones footage. So I don't know if they that means they actually start fighting in episode two. But if it's centered around Damon, then 
we must be off to the races. We got here, Conqueror's Crown says the whole Damon problem goes down. Damon steals an egg. Otto goes there to get the egg. Rhaenyra goes to help negotiate. Uh, Aemon, the White, Aemon White Wolf says Otto forces Alicent to be around Viserys more. The close friendship with Rhaenyra and Alicent then drifts apart. The more serious, darker Rhaenyra, now that her mom is gone, slash she has the burden of the air, suitors for her start lining up, and lots of Damon scenes leading to the Stepstones plot. Yeah, that all sounds right. Ooh, Sandra, we find out that Missara is one of, if not Otto's only source about Damon's comment. Although that may reveal that reveal may come later, and so I'll go with it being clear that Allison is fully aware of her father's machinations and is okay with it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys for everybody who sent in answers to our questions. We're going to be doing more. Thank you. Next week, and so make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram so that you can join in the convo. It's it's really fun to read everybody's theories and comments, and it's but it's not quite as fun as reading their own, which is what we're going to go to next. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I hate recording ah, remotely with you. <laughs> me too. So thanks to everyone who commented back on our question prompt. Thanks for giving Hannah some material for today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to keep doing this every week. And so follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And we're going to send out these questions early in the week so we can keep the convo going. So thanks, everybody, for participating. You can also send us your owns right after the episode. What? Everybody probably saw our thousand retweets. It was so much fun on Sunday night to see everybody's comments. And so now we're going to run through those. First up, we've got Twitter. At Little Wolfbird, who said, Own to that Kingsguard. I'm relieved when you return because I get to keep my head. Also, where were you? With Mother or on a dragon? At Beauty Brienne, the tourney slash birth scene owned me. I need to go to hug my cats and break out the adult Capri Suns. Oh my gosh. Adult Capri Suns? Nicole owned to the really smart use of Viserys' crown. For some reason, the scene he was and wasn't wearing it seemed really significant to me. From Jen Calhoun, owned to Ramin Javadi for bringing us back to Westeros and bringing all the feelings back with every piece of that score. At the Bear Air, owned to the young actresses in this episode. They were absolutely fantastic. From at Miranese Not, owned to Millie Alcock for playing Rhaenyra with humor and heart. Funniest character of the episode to me. Hashtag House of the Dragon. Cavaldin, <laughs> Jason Alden, owned to Matt Smith's introductions, Damon, sitting on the Iron Throne like a baller. At Ghost Chase Killa, owned to Ramin Javadi for making the music that takes me right back there. At K2Cav, promise me. And Masaria is there for the vibes. At Micah of Clark, owned to the Corbray Knight. They actually put in a Corbray among other houses. At Shane Lisa, owned to Patty Constantine. I mean, he absolutely destroyed that pilot. Terrific performance. Also owned to smelling like a dragon. Haha, <laughs> like that can't be good. At Low the Lynx, owned to Rainies for being a badass queen who never was and for having great relationship with her husband. John Mick on Twitter. Too many owns to count. But I've reluctantly parsed it down to these. Use one, all or none, your choice. One, Ramin Javadi is a genius, threading into pieces of music he did for Danny, such as Dragonstone from her epic return to Dragonstone, as well as the GOT main titles. Two, the cold open with the Great Council gave vibes similar to the opening of Lord of the Rings, informative, grand, and foreboding. It was more succinct than Lord of the Rings, but still carried that heavy foreshadowing. 
Three, the callbacks start quickly beyond the music, showed Alice and Rhaenyra walking the courtyard where Cersei painted the map in the last couple of seasons, and then showed a bottom-up panning shot of the huge winding staircase where the hound and the mountain fought and died yep. in the bells. Amazing. And four, having the Targaryens speak High Valyrian amongst themselves is such a genius move. Until it was mentioned months ago that they do this, I had lived under the assumption that they all stopped speaking it in favor of the common tongue after the conquest. But now it's the only way that I want Targaryens to speak each other to each other or anyone in general. At Brown Ball, owned to the writers and Matt Smith, who made Damon so creepy and yet so damn hot. And shout out to Missaria, who looks stunning in that white cloak. PJ Lanford, plain and tall, says owned to nearly a whole scene in High Valyrian. At Matt Cuddy, owned Blackfire, we finally get to see it on screen, and it absolutely did not disappoint. At Azora High Five, another owned for finally another for finally having another Song of Ice and Fire season with fantastic dialogue. Our eight-year dry spell is over. <laughs> At Eve Best Online, owned to Rainies and Corliss for gossiping like scroll gossiping like schoolgirls in the stands. Heart emoji, fire emoji. Mikey Mann owned to Miguel Sapochnik for hitting all the small details, building storylines, nods to the original show, juxtapositions, and leveling up in terms of scale and budget. That dude is talented. At Cake's Palm, owned to Rhaenyra and Alicent getting married. <laughs> Fire's Pyre owned to the chemistry between young Rhaenyra and Sir Harold Westerling. They gave Faux me strong show. Sansa Hound BFF Faux vibes. show. Does my dad know my uncle's here? Nah. Okay. <laughs> At Max Shine, owned to the Dragon Saddles and Flight Safety, of course. <laughs> Seth410 owns to the canon reveal that the conquest is done in anticipation of the long night returning. At Aiden Evans2002, owned to Ama for stealing our hearts right before it was crushed. Also owned to Aegon being an absolute G for uniting Westeros for the inevitable threat of the others. It is all starting to make sense now. Minus season eight. <laughs> <laughs> At so cute, Amanda owned a hashtag House of the Dragon for bringing me back to Twitter and reading the best comments from all my favorite people. At Nugers, owned to Miguel Spachnik and Ryan Condal for managing to get me hyped for another throne show, even though I had said it would be impossible after season eight. Hashtag, but please don't hurt me again. At Blue Fleur, owned to the saddest Tracaris scene on screen, young Rainier lighting the funeral pyre for her mother and brother. Also, the lore implications. They were waiting for her because she was the only immediate family member to the deceased with the dragon. Or it's because it was her daughter, seen right. That's what I thought. But yeah, that makes sense too. At King Krakauer, had a good first watch, owned a Damon's wardrobe team, helm and matching horse ensemble. That whole thing was delightful. At Baylor Depoth, owned to. <laughs> <laughs> Owns her back. At Baylor, Jepeth, owned to the new Iron Throne design. At Phil Milo Doc, so glad you guys are back. Thanks, man. We're glad we're back, too. My own goes to, uh, we didn't actually stop recording, by the way, but I'll carry on. My own goes to Aim of the Bath, the foreshadowing that <laughs> acting on the birthing bed made me really feel for the character. Amazing work by C.N. Brooke. Now on to Instagram. Dan Cantu says, My own is for Caraxes for having the longest neck in the realm. D Logsy13 owned the guy getting topped off in the brothel and silencing the crowd at the same time. Also, I was right about that neck from my trailer own. Hashtag Caraxes. Uh, at Marining Art on Instagram, owned to Matt Smith for actually making me like Damon. Also owned that long pause when Borman Baratheon hesitated with his vow to Rhaenyra with the eye emoji. 
P94 at home. Welcome back. Owning the Dragons. It's clear how formidable formidable they will be. Virginia Oxford owned to Viserys fondling candle flames in front of Valeria and hashtag unburnt hashtag Targaryen manicure. Rob Nemes, 89, owned to Allison for cutting through the riddles and saying exactly what she is thinking. Curtis Moore official owned to the cat's bod dagger cameo appearing during the prophetic bombshell. Jay Denariduff, Ramin Javadi's badass music. Sluggeruni, to the brave souls who sign up to her dragons with not but long charred sticks. G Sizzle, Damon owned Otto by thrashing his son and getting his daughter's favor. Uh, Lauren Maselli owned to the costume department. <laughs> Those outfits are fire. You see the seahorse on Corvus's shirt? Yes. At the turning, Jesus yes. Christ. That like that, you don't need any kind of jewelry when you got that. No. You really don't. So good. Sadalman, 89. Gotta be known for that big old family secret. Shush emoji, zipper face emoji, ice cube emoji, <laughs> fire emoji, dragon emoji, knife emoji. You summed it up. <laughs> Lord Commander Tom Snow owned a Chris and Cole for smacking Damon with the flail while he showboats. Missy Jenny Walk owned to the duo in the middle of the orgy who paused to give Damon their full attention. Oh my God, the spotlight <laughs> on him. It looked yeah. like everyone was at a like sip and paint. Yeah, session and they were the model in the middle a steely owned the queen who never was for her i told you show i told you so casual rant during the tourney adriso lopez my own is for john snow the prince that was promised that viserys was talking about russell gable the throne itself it is sentient mrs duncan the tall hbo no ads 1495 the side eye and smirk all right, we got an email from Michael McCann. Mike from England. My own goes to the exchange between Damon and Viserys at the end. The emotional weight, the war of words, the impact it will have going forward. Even the way it's shot is just pure perfection, and it's exactly what the original Game of Thrones was all about. You see, Hannah, people like it. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Sam D. who sent us an email who says... Own goes to King V for storming out of his council of crows, feasting on the corpses of his beloved late wife, Emma, and baby P, baby B. R.I.P. We weren't crazy. There was a chance that this would be good. And it was. And it's going it's to be. Good. And it held up. It's pretty good. And we get season two, baby. So, so. we're going to get, we're going to hold on to at least nine million, maybe eight for episode two next week. I think we're going to get more, to be honest with you. I think there's a good chance we could get more because I think that there might have been some people who were kind of holding out. No way. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm hopeful, Dude. like wishful thinking. But I think that there were people who weren't going to watch it because... You sound like me right now. You're like, you know what? I think it's actually going to be <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 maybe that's wishful thinking. But I just... I think there's people who weren't going to watch because they were played so hard by Game of Thrones, you know? So we'll see. But I have high hopes. <laughs> Well, thanks to everyone for sending in your responses and your owns. We're going to be doing all that again on Sunday night. And so hang out with us on social media. We're going to probably do another live stream before the episode airs. So just look at those accounts and we'll talk about that and you'll be able to click on it if that's happening. If you want to find us, you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, by searching for Game of Owns, or you can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. And our next episode will be out Sunday night. The Rogue Prince. I wonder who that could be about. <laughs> Find out on Sunday night with the rest of the world. We'll see you there. That still watches Game of Thrones. Bye.